Well, it's good to uh, see you all again, uh, nice and bright and early. And uh, it's, it's about halfway through the conference now, is that right? Halfway through? Well, we come again uh, to the book of Ephesians, and today it's not going to be too difficult in terms of understanding. Uh, there are a couple of passages which uh, we often hear at weddings and things like that. But there is a few twists to it uh, that is uh, perhaps surprising for some of us. And what is hard, although not so much in understanding, is uh, the applying and putting into action. So let's ask God to, uh, to help us in that as we uh, turn to page 19, I think, in our booklets and Ephesians chapters 5 and 6. Let's go to God in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you that all fatherhood... Uh, all family comes ultimately from you, for you are the one who is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You're the one who is our father. We thank you that you give us your spirit, and we ask, Father, that your spirit may be at work in our hearts. Please fill us with your spirit, that we might be those who live for our Lord Jesus Christ in all of life, including family and church. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It's been great uh, for me coming to uh, this conference because it reminds me how abnormal my church back in Sydney is. It's abnormal because it's a student church. You know, everybody's about this age range from about 18 to 25 or so. And then there's, you know, there's a few little kids around, but not too many. And there's me, you know, I'm the oldest almost, about 53 years old and no more other people. Uh, but I come along to a camp like this and it's great to see that it's, it's a family, a family church from young to old. And uh, parents, children, kids, um, I just saw this morning all the kids running around here, running, running, running. And someone said, oh, it's amazing how much energy they have. And I said, yes, it's a good reminder, but I don't see any parents running, 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 running. <laughs> we get run down some other way, don't we? It's great to be in a family church. I mean, who in their right mind would spend their honeymoon at church camp? <laughs> Unless it's some people who love church and who knows their church loves them. Community of church and the community of family, there's a great overlap, isn't there? A great impact each has on the other. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that if you're going to be an elder, a deacon, a, um, a leader in the church, then your family life must be together in order that you may be an example of life for the rest of the family, the big family. That is, the church is like a, a big family and your immediate family is like a little church. Uh, the two play off each other. Here in chapter 4 to 6 of Ephesians, we've talked about the Christ-centered community, and it is no surprise that the Christ-centered community flows through to the Christ-centered family. 
after all. Come with me back to chapter 2 and verse 19. Chapter 2 and verse 19. Remember that we are no longer people who are excluded on the outside, the Gentile pagans, but instead now we are included. Now we are those who are the one new humanity in Christ. We are the citizens, chapter 2, verse 19. Fellow citizens with the Jewish Christians. But notice, at the end of verse 19, we are also members of the household of God. Church is described as the household, as the family of God. And so it becomes no surprise that when you get to chapter 5 and verse 21 on, he hones into this what we call the household codes, as he encourages the families in the church to live out their Christ-centered community in the context of their own family life, husband and wife, parents and children, and slaves and masters. It is Christ-centered. That is still the key. You see the Christ-centeredness of it in each of these sections. And so uh, the husband and wife one, very clearly in chapter 5 and verse 22, the wives are to submit to their own husbands, but notice, as to the Lord. There is Jesus right there at the beginning. Submit to your husbands as to Jesus, as to him as Lord. Now, the husbands are to love their wives, but as Christ loved the church, Jesus is at the very center. In chapter 6, verse 1, children to obey their parents, but notice they're to do it in the Lord. That is how they obey. That is why they obey their parents, in the Lord. The fathers are to teach the children, end of verse 4, the instruction of the Lord. The slaves are to be those who not only uh, work for their earthly masters, but for Jesus who is always looking. And the masters are to treat their, uh, their slaves uh, fairly because they also, verse 9, chapter 6, have a master in heaven. Jesus is throughout this section. He is the centre of the family life. After all, come back to chapter 5 and verse 21, which is sort of the heading of this whole section. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It is the Christ-centered family because it's all done out of respect, out of obedience, out of honor for Christ Jesus. This sentence covers each of these three subcategories of family that follow. Notice, this is actually an outflow of the Spirit's work in our life. So go back to chapter 5 and verse 18, we're to be filled with the Spirit. What does it look like? We saw last night to be filled with the Spirit means the way we talk and sing to one another in verse 19, the way we give thanks to God for everything, even so-called bad things in life, verse 20. And then verse 21, we are to be filled with the Spirit as we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the work of God's Spirit in our life. It actually flows through to everyday life at home. It's interesting that the filling of the Spirit gets channeled to how you live for Jesus. Now, the Spirit is not interested in talking too much about himself. He keeps on directing people 
to Jesus. But the other interesting thing in verse 21 that's important to notice is that to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, uh, the submitting to one another is not reciprocal. Now, some people, I think, misunderstand this verse by saying, oh, well, you know, you submit one to another. So especially in husband and wife, well, you know, wife submits to husband, but also husband submit to wife, huh? yeah, reciprocal. That cannot work, can it? It cannot work because, hey, children submit to parents, and, hey, you parents, you submit to your children too? No way that's going to work, is it? And slaves, are you to submit to masters? Yes, but are the masters to submit to the slaves? No. Submission, built into the very word of submission, is that there is a hierarchy. There are those who are in authority and those who submit, who come under, who follow, who submit to the authority. Well, what then does it mean to submit to one another? What it means is that the wives are to submit to the husbands, that the children are to submit to the parents, that the slaves are to submit to the masters. In that sense, it's one to the other. Well then, let's take each of these three uh, sets of relationship one at a time. Christ-centred marriage then, point two. The passage takes us ultimately to Genesis chapter 2. You see it there in Ephesians 5 and verse 31 where Genesis 2 is quoted. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. The unity of marriage is the key in the Genesis passage. The one flesh. The two become one. The man and the woman become one. The man who is different from the woman. Remember the man is created from the ground. The woman, however, is created from his side, from his rib. God does not create a second man. He creates a woman. So that while being different, they are brought together as one, as one flesh, so that together they can rule the world in Genesis chapter 1. If there was two men then there could be a possibility of a, a, a rivalry, you know, two men heading up two humanities. But no, we have Adam and his wife who together with him rules the world and rules the animals and everything else. The oneness is key to humanity. And the oneness is a oneness that is designed to be um, put almost above any other human relationship. Even the relationship to your own parents. And so, Ephesians 5.31, a man shall leave his father and mother. Notice it doesn't say the woman is to leave her father and mother. It assumes that the woman will. Right, Like, I guess, in the Asian family, it's assumed that the woman would leave her parents and go into, as it were, the family of, of the husband. But what is un-Chinese here is the idea that the man is to start up his own family. He's to be the head of his own family. He is to leave his parents in order to be his own man, his own head of his own household. 
we have a saying that blood is thicker than water. Often uh, Asian Christians quote, you're bone of my bones, you know, flesh of my flesh, in terms of talking about the parent-child relationship. But in Genesis, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh, is not talking about the parent-child relationship, it's talking about the husband-wife relationship. There's a real leaving that needs to happen. I'm often asked by people, does that mean that you've got to leave uh, physically, that is, actually not live in the same place? I don't think Genesis chapter 2 necessitates that. Genesis chapter 2 is more saying you've got to actually be your own family unit, not under the authority of the husband's uh, parents. But I think it's actually very hard, especially in our Asian culture, for the husband to do that job if he's still under the authority, the roof, staying in close quarters with his parents. My parents tried to do that. Um, they're in Hong Kong, uh, they got married, they lived in a flat with uh, my father's uh, parents. And first year it was okay, you know, the, um, my mother was very, very kind, uh, very generous, etc. Everything was okay until I came along. When I came along, all hell broke loose. Um, my mother wanted to uh, you know, raise me the, the new way, the Dr. Spock way of the 1960s. And one of the Dr. Spock way was to make sure that when you're drinking through the bottle, you, you suck, you know, so you develop all your muscles. Now, like the boys did down here the other day, right? Suck, 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 suck. But the mother-in-law said, no, no, you don't do that. And so she got the uh, bottle and got a pair of scissors and cut the top of the teeth. So I go, 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 like this, right? And there's all kinds of different ways of raising children. And so much almost uh, stress, animosity that I was told that as my father went out to work each day, my mother would lock herself in the room with myself and her. And there were lots of tears and, and things like that. And just after a few months, uh, they had to move out. And from that time on to, to this day, uh, there's not a good relationship between my mother and the mother-in-law. Son and father-in-law, usually not too bad, right? We guys, we can cope, right? But there's something about daughters and mother-in-laws often. Now, not all the time, but that's that's a general case. Now, uh, often I'm asked by people, look, we're waiting for our HDB flat now. We've got our, our names together. We've signed up. We're waiting for the lottery to come, or we got the lottery, and it's getting built, and and we don't want to waste money. And so let, let's just stay with you know the husband's parents just for a few years and. You know, we don't want to throw away money, you know, empty money thrown down the drain just playing rent. I want to suggest to you, I want to encourage you to think of that not as wasted money. It's money put into good use for the ongoing good relationship between the wife and the mother-in-law. <laughs> Be those who take God's wisdom to heart. I've had friends who, um, you know, they, they, they stay in the flat and say, oh, whose kitchen is it? Yeah, is it the wife's kitchen or is it the mother-in-law's kitchen? I've had a uh, family who uh, 
wanting to watch TV, but they can't, and so they have to wait till, you know, the, the dad finishes watching TV, then they can sneak in and watch TV. And, and it's, 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 and sometimes the parents want you to stay. You know, they don't want you to waste money, and, and sometimes it's hard to move out. Uh, one family I know wanted to move out, and the parents say, no, 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 no. And so in the end, they bought more and more stuff, and so they had all the stuff in their room, and then they had the stuff into the corridor and the suitcases and everything, filling up the house until the parents said, okay, okay, go, 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 go. <laughs> so there's an idea for you. But all what I'm trying to say, I'm trying to say that part of leaving your parents is in order that you might be able to start up your own family be those men who are going to be men. Men, if you become always your your mother's little boy, life is going to get very hard. You are stuck between trying to please your wife and trying to please your mother. That is an impossible place to be. Be a man, leave your parents. Not, not that you don't care for them anymore, but start up your own family. Unity, that builds for the unity. But what else builds for unity? Faithfulness. Rather, the vows that you make towards each other at the wedding day are the most important part of the wedding. You can have everything else, uh, drop everything else in the wedding. You don't have photos, you don't have to have the cake, you don't have to have the nice car, but if you don't have the vows, then actually it's not a wedding. Some of my Christian friends, uh, they decide to write their own vows and uh, she decided to say, uh, Dear Jeff, I pledge you my fidelity. Great word, fidelity. Right? Fidelity. Like high five, you know, it's no high five, high fidelity. The faithful transmission of the sound, right? To be faithful to you. Only on the actual wedding day, she sort of mumbled her words a little bit and she ended up saying, Dear Jeff, I pledge you my fertility. And, uh, which is slightly different. So don't write your own vows, right? <laughs> Stick to the ones in the book. But faithfulness is the key. Now that has to be said in our generation, right? Where people sign prenuptials and you stay with one person for life. In, a, in Australia, I went to this wedding, non-Christian wedding, and it was amazing. It was out in, not a church, of course, out in some, you know, nice countryside, a river at the back, and, and the uh, celebrant, right, the secular celebrant, said uh, to the couple, um, uh, I'm sorry I have to say this, but according to Australian law, I have to say this, that you're meant to be uh, married for life. He said that. Right? That's how much our cultures have moved. We are those who are to stick to the unity by being faithful to our marriage. Real marriage is marriage in unity. Now, the other thing that is um, important in this one flesh relationship, as Genesis makes very clear, is that the man and the woman were both naked and they felt no shame. That is, the sexual relationship between the husband and wife is actually not wrong. It's actually good. It's actually God's good design for our marriage. God created sexual relationship to foster the relationship between the husband and the wife. 1 Corinthians 7 encourages husband and wife to have that intimate relationship often. Some of you young people, um, you wonder why do you need to be encouraged to have sexual relationship? Right, especially if you're going out and you're trying to be pure and it's so hard anyway. Well, friends, let me tell you something. When you get older, the kids come, 
your career gets busy. It's actually very hard sometimes to spend time with one another as husband and wife. Sexual relationship within marriage is encouraged. It actually builds for the unity. It builds for the relationship. A good relationship helps you in the bedroom. A good relationship in the bedroom helps you in the kitchen and everywhere else in life as well. The two go round and round. However, having started with Genesis chapter 2 as the basis in verse 31 of chapter 5 here, he then says, look, Genesis chapter 2 is really a little secret. And the secret is... Adam and Eve is not what really marriage is about. Look at verse 32. This mystery or this secret, having quoted Genesis chapter 2, is profound is not the right word. Uh, this secret is, is great. That's the word. This is a big secret. And, not but, but and, Paul says, I'm referring, I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. There's when you read Genesis chapter 2, you think, oh, it's about Adam and Eve, obvious, right? Human marriage. But Paul says, no, no, God has something even deeper in mind. He has, it's a coded message there. What he has in mind is that it's really about another man, Jesus, the one who heads up the new humanity, the second Adam, and his bride, that is the church, his people. That is the real marriage. And so we are, the whole of chapter 5 then, verse 22 onwards, are to model our human marriage on the reality of Christ and the church, of that marriage. Uh, I used to like making uh, model cars, and uh, I bought myself, when I was young, a big metal Ferrari car, one-sixth scale. I still haven't quite made it, but I've got it all ready to be made. Um I thought my son will make it for me, but he's not interested in it, so I might have to wait for my grandchildren or something like that. But it's such a good model. What I did was I went to actually the Ferrari shop in Sydney in order to uh, take pictures. Uh, somehow they let me take pictures, and I actually took pictures of the real Ferrari Testarossa, and I got all these photos so that when I actually make my model, I can make it as close as possible to the real thing. You see, Christ and the church, that is the real marriage. Our human marriage are just pale reflections, are just trying to imitate, to copy the real thing. Well, what is the real marriage about? Christ is the head. Let's skip down to point D. Christ is the head of the church. And therefore, the wives are to model her relationship with the husband, according to society, that Christ is the head of the church. Coming to chapter 5 and verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, and notice this, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body. We expect the church to follow the authority of Jesus. That's clear. Right, He's the Lord. We are the body. We are his people. We don't expect Jesus to do what we want him to do. It's the other way around. And so 
The motto for wives is, as Christ is the head of the church, so my husband is my head. He is your head. That is what women, wives, should be thinking. Now, what does this mean? First of all, it doesn't mean that you are somehow second class. It doesn't mean that you're somehow inferior. That you have to submit to him doesn't mean that you are less of a person than him. Very important to say that in our you know, Western uh, liberal generation where anything to do with submission is you know, thrown out as, uh, as old-fashioned. No, no, submission can be a submission of equal partners. Now, Jesus submits to God his Father. He's not any less God than God the Father. And yet there is that relationship that is built in. Wives are to submit to the husbands because that is the way God has created this marriage thing to work. However, this submission is not exactly the same as Chinese traditional submission. The Chinese uh, traditional submission is where uh, the man of the house says everything and the woman says nothing. She's just to look, sit down, look pretty, bounded feet, you know, nice earlobes, and that's it, right? And produce children. That is not the idea of submission necessarily here. Um, Proverbs talks about um, having a, um, a wise wife, a prudent wife, is a gift from God. Well, what's the use of having a wise wife if you never ask her for any ideas? Right? And if you never ask her for suggestions? Right? There's, there's a partnership in this. But what it does mean is that he's the one who is ultimately responsible. He's the one who, you can discuss things, but if it's a matter of, of where you're going to make a decision, and it's a big enough decision that, you know, you're going to make together that kind of thing, well, he has the final say. He has to wear the responsibility. But it's not just in terms of final decisions either. It's in terms of day-to-day -day attitude. Day-to-day -day attitude. Where the wife is, has a sort of gentle and quiet spirit. A gentle, quiet spirit doesn't mean that uh, you are a nice kind of personality that's not bubbly, right? You can have a bubbly personality and still be, have a gentle and quiet spirit. The gentle and quiet spirit is the attitude of, of willingness to, to follow, willingness to, to respect. In verse 33, part of submitting to the husband is that she respects her husband. It's, it's the attitude thing. It means that the, the wife is not naggy, not nagging. You know what nagging is? Hands up, you know what nagging is. <laughs> the men the men know what nagging is, right? The women uh, let me tell you women, you don't know what nagging is. You just know how to do it, but you don't you don't know what it is. <laughs> what nagging is this? Nagging is <laughs> What nagging is? is when the woman is right. <laughs> right? You know, if, if my wife says, um, dear, have you taken out the garbage yet? 
And I say, oh, no, no, not yet. Let me keep watching you know, the soccer. I'll do it in, in, in a minute. Right? Ten minutes pass. Have you taken out the garbage yet? No, no, not yet. It's just half time, half time. Uh, <laughs> now, she's in the right. I should be there taking out the garbage. Now, if I've actually done it, I said, have you taken out the garbage yet? Yes, I did it. End of story. <laughs> right? But it's because I'm in the wrong and my wife is in the right, that's what makes it nagging. The trouble is, ladies, just because you are in the right, it doesn't necessarily give you the right to then keep on hassling and nagging. We need to be respecting, we need to be encouraging, we need to, you know, you try to take out the garbage yourself and go, oh dear, can you please help me? Right? Let me tell you, he'll be jumping right out there and helping you, right? <laughs> You need to see how you can encourage him. I remember once my um, my father decided to buy some crazy-looking painting and putting it in the lounge room. And my mother really did like this uh, painting. And and she said, oh, dear, you sure it really matches the lounge room? Shall we pray about it? <laughs> that's, a, that's a good way, isn't it? And the painting ended up in the garage. <laughs> There's, there's different ways, right, as you negotiate. And, but you've got to see that he actually is your head. On the other side, husbands, you've got to understand that she is your body. Pick it up from uh, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own body, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. As the church is the gathering of God's people, we are the body of Christ. He is the head. But notice what the head does. He has the authority, but he's not going around wielding his authority in some kind of tyranny. The way Christ used his authority was he was the Lord, the King, who came to die for us. He's the one who sacrificed himself on the cross. He gave himself to us, the bride, even when we're ugly. That's why we needed beautifying. We weren't Cinderella, we were the free ugly stepsisters. Christ loved the church in a way that is sacrificial and costly and also that is completely undeserved. To love our wives even when they are nagging. <laughs> to love our wives even when they don't quite deserve it. At some level, that is actually harder than submitting to your husband, is to have to love your wife like that. Men, we are to think that she is our body. What do you do to your own body? Well, some of you, I can see, go to the gym, right? You look after your body. 
Some of you, you know, make sure you get it nicely fed and, you know, have a little cut. You, you make sure it's all okay. You look after your body. Well, remember that marriage is about two becoming one. She is your body. You are united as one person. And so verse 28 there uh, is one of the strange little verses in the New Testament where it calls upon you to be selfish. Right? You are to love yourself. Because your wife is yourself. Your wife is your body. Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. You look after your wife as you look after your own body, and guess what? Not only is she cared for, but you will be cared for as well. We are to nourish and care and cherish her. Having been married for some 24 years or so, I'm still learning this. I'm the kind of, you know, blokey kind of bloke. I'm just task-oriented, you know. I just sort of do things and provide. And, and what I need to keep learning is how to uh, give emotional support, how, how to give time, uh, how to... Uh, that's all part of nourishing our wives. She is your body. In all this, notice we got to concentrate on our side of the coin. It's often when uh, these passages are preached on, when it says, uh, wives, submit to your husbands, then the husband sort of nudges the wife, you know, see? <laughs> and then when you get to uh, husbands, love your wives, a bunch comes out the other way, right? See? Now, it's interesting that Paul does not tell the husbands to make sure that the wives know that the husbands have authority over them. The phrase, he's your head, is for the wife, not for the husband. Right? It is not for the husband to say, hey, I am your head. But rather, the message for the husband is, she is your body that you need to care for. We've got to concentrate on our side of the equation. When we don't, then marriage problems spiral into more and more problems. Now, when you have a husband who doesn't care for the wife, but wants to stand on his authority, quote Bible passages and say, therefore, hey, you've got to submit to me. And when you have a wife who doesn't want to submit and want to do her own thing, that's going to get into a very, very fast, vicious cycle, isn't it? On the other hand, when you have a husband who's willing to love sacrificially, and not necessarily giving her everything she wants, but like Christ, seeking that which is for her good, and when you have a husband who wants to encourage the wife to live for Jesus, to grow, hey, then wives, that's a kind of husband that's easy to submit to, isn't it? He wants what's best for you, what's good for you. Well, it's easy to submit to that. And when you have a wife who has that attitude of willingness to submit, well, that is the easiest kind of person to love. Work on your side of the coin, not trying to correct the other person, and then there's a chance that this thing will reverse the vicious cycle and start going into the nice, happy, smiley kind of cycle. Christ-centered marriage builds for unity. Well, how does that affect the church? For ill and for good, 
a good family or bad family will affect the church community. For ill, if there's a husband who's a tyrant at home, he'll be a tyrant as a Bible study group leader. He'll be a tyrant as a church leader. He'll be a tyrant organizing things at church. If there's adultery in the family relationship, that's got to affect the wider church community. Many, many years ago, there was a a Chinese church in Sydney where um, one of the elders had actually committed adultery. And when it was brought into the notice of uh, the other leaders in the church, you know what they said? They said, oh, cannot be, uh, because we are Chinese. (laughs) It will affect, obviously, the family, but we don't live on an island, do we? It will affect everybody else, and especially if... You know, the partners and who shouldn't be together actually in the same congregation, that, that, that's really hurtful to family life. We've got to keep our family strong, our husband and wife relationship strong as part and parcel of growing the church community. And it's great to see our honeymooners here at church camp. Uh, I've done a bit of research and they are uh, a couple who actually seek to serve others, you know, helping out with youth group, helping out leading Bible study groups, running the kids program and having a couple who's not only interested in each other but seeing how they together can serve the wider community. That's beautiful, isn't it? The unity of marriage influences our own children. Uh, You want to raise your children well, don't focus on the children. Focus on each other as husband and wife. Because you get that unity right in marriage, then it will flow out to your children. Malachi chapter 2, remember, talks about God wanting a, um, a faithfulness in marriage so that we may have godly offspring. Be those who grow our church by growing our marriages. First set of relationships. Second set of relationships. This quicker now. Christ-centered parenting. Chapter 6, verse 1 to 4. Children, verse 1. Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well for you and then you may live long in the land. Who are the children referred to here? I think it's referring to our young friends sitting out up the front here. That is, not you three, don't worry, okay? No, those three, okay? Um, <laughs> it's talking about children who are still dependent on us in our home. Um, you know, the kids, right? The kids running around, even the teenagers, you know, they are still dependent on us. Uh, you are still children of your parents, and you need to honour your parents by actually obeying your parents. Notice you do it in the Lord. That is, you do it in a way that is for the sake of Jesus. If your parents tell you to um, lie, to do something wrong, then you shouldn't do it, should you? Right? Because 
you cannot, you know, do this sinful thing in the name of the Lord. But in as much as it's in the scope of living for Jesus and your parents want you to do it, then do it. It's right. But notice it's not just obeying. Verse 2, it's honouring. That is, you can obey your parents and yet dishonour them at the same time. Uh, can you do the dishes? Um, I thought my sister's meant to do the dishes today. Okay, um, why me again? <laughs> right? That is obeying. You are actually doing what your parents tell you to do, but it's not in an attitude of honouring. We are to honour as well as to obey. But what about as we get a bit older? You know, like the age of... Um, why here, right? Uh, you're no longer a little kid. Uh, you're still a child of your parents. You always have to honour them till the day you die. In fact, yeah, even when they have passed on, you can still honour their name. But I don't think it means that you've got to honour your parents as adults by obeying them in the same way you obeyed them when you were little. It's talking about children here, children who are dependent children. Because in verse 4, the fathers are to bring up their children. It's talking about children who still need bringing up. The process of raising children is to raise them from dependence on you to be independent on you, to become adults. When they're adults and they still need to, you know, when they're 40 years old and still need to come back to mummy and say, mummy, you know, uh, when can I come home? And, you know, do I really need to um, uh, wear this shirt instead of that shirt? And then it's not honouring to the parents. You haven't actually raised an adult who can care for themselves. However, you still need to honour your parents. You honour them by doing what is right and wise. Not necessarily by doing everything they want you to do. And so, you know, your parents may want you to um, do this job, chase this career, but you may see, actually, that's, you know, it's not, it's not sinful, but that's not where I see my life is going. You need to honour them. You need to listen. You need to um, discuss but you don't necessarily need to follow everything your parents ask you to do. You honour them by making good, godly, wise decisions. And then your life, your fruit of righteousness in your life, will actually bring honour to their name. They may not see it at the beginning, but somewhere along the way, they'll see that you've made godly and wise decisions and it will honour their name. It's a hard thing. It's a transition thing. I'm going through the phase now where my kids, you know, are, twins are 20. Uh, my son is almost 16. He's a bit taller than me and getting broader than me. And the girls are, well, they're almost independent. Well, at least they think they're independent. They think they're adults, but really they still don't know lots of things. But they're, they're getting there, right? And so my wife and I, we're in the process of working out how to let go, how to let them try things and, and not to keep holding on too tight. 
Right? That's part of our growth as, as, as parents. What do parents have to do? Well, notice verse 4 is not addressed to parents as such. It's addressed to fathers. That's interesting, isn't it? Did you ever notice that? That is, fathers take a responsibility in the raising of children in a way that they stand behind the whole thing. They are responsible ultimately, especially in the teaching of them, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Uh, they're not, verse 4, to provoke their children to anger, and maybe that uh, men are more likely to exasperate uh, their children. Um, do you know how you can frustrate your children? You can frustrate your children by promising something and not delivering. You can frustrate your children by expecting them to do something that's beyond their ability. You know, it's a two-year-old. Hey, how come you can't say the alphabet? Oh, you should be able to say the alphabet by two. How come you can't do calculus by two? <laughs> right? A little little boy, you know, two-month-old spills the milk, Right? It's not because he's being, you know, rebellious. It's just because he can't control. You've got to be age-appropriate. Don't expect too much of them that is not appropriate. But also, you've got to bring them in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That continues to be a challenge for me. Uh, I find it easy to, um, you know... I did medicine, I dropped it for ministry. It's no big deal really for me, right? No big deal. It's a lot harder now for me to actually want my children to be godly and serving God rather than going after good marks. It's actually harder to give up things like that for the children. But I've got to keep teaching myself. What's more important for my children is that they grow to be loving God. They grow to be a blessing to others, to serve others, to, to do Bible studies with others, uh, to care for their friends who are going through hard times. That is more important for them than what they get in their exams. I know it's hard in Singapore. There's lots of pressures on, on kids. Uh, it's coming to Australia as well. Uh, we Asians have wrecked the Australian education system. Um, but I know it's harder here. But as Christian parents, we've got to keep asking ourselves the question, what do we really want for our children? How does eternity affect our desire for our children? Training in the Lord. Bit of an aside, uh, not so much about mothers, uh, because fathers are addressed here. But in Titus chapter 2, just a little time on this, Titus chapter 2, flip over to Titus chapter 2, which Paul also wrote. Go towards the end of the Bible, you've gone through 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus chapter 2, and verse 3, Titus 2 verse 3, you got that? But as for, uh, no, verse 3, Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behaviour, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And what is the good thing they are to teach? Verse 4, And so to train the younger women to love their husbands. Notice that always comes first in a lot of these kind of uh, directions. Uh, the the um, responsibility to their husband first, to love their husbands and their children, 
to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that's another mission, that the word of God may not be reviled. There's a little phrase in the middle of that of verse 5, that phrase working at home. It's actually only one word in the original. Uh, it's about uh, domesticity, uh, the focus of, of working in, in the home. That phrase is um, anathema. That phrase is so out of date, so foreign and old-fashioned to our modern world. I'm uh, an educated woman. I can make lots of money. Why do I need to stay at home to look after children? Put a caveat. Uh, by, by, by saying that uh, to be working at home, it doesn't mean that you can't do any work outside. Remember the Proverbs 31 woman? right? She's the great wife uh, who can find, and she does everything except for sleep, basically. Uh, she does everything. And... She also seems to uh, sell land, a bit of a real estate agent. She makes uh, things at home, sewing things, you know, a bit of a merchant, uh, selling things from home. and uh, She does everything. But when you read through that passage, she's not doing it to find herself, to make a name for herself, to be the great career woman. She's not doing it to fulfill her identity or anything like that. The whole passage that this is a wife that is an excellent wife because she's going to do good to the husband. She's going to do good to the family. She, she does all those things so that her family doesn't have to be cold and worried uh, in winter. They, they're clothed in scarlet. And her husband is able to praise her. You see, she's doing all those things, some of which is outside the home, even making money kind of stuff, but she does it for the sake of the family. I think that's the idea here of, of being busy at home. That is, you're, you're home-focused rather than out there focused or your own career-focused. I'm told by, uh, by Cheryl that uh, in BDPC there are many, many good examples of this, but I should still say it just to encourage you. We need the encouragement because our world keeps on saying the other message again and again. You meet up with your you know, university uh, friends and they say, oh, what are you up to? What are you doing? Oh, you're just a housewife. Right? Just a housewife. It's a real put-down kind of term. We've got to see that we are not just a housewife. We are a housewife. You know, I am the CEO of... My family, I'm the one who, you know, organises the uh, administration of the kitchen. I, I do this and I organise that. There's so much that a, the mother has to do. This, you know, career woman, they take a break, you know, for an afternoon. The whole company's not going to die. You have young children and you decide to walk out for two hours. Your little kids may not be there when you come back. Right? It is hard work. It is very important work because in the end, people matter more than money. I know that most parents and mothers want to do what is best for the children. And often that's why they want to earn a bit more money so that they can give their children better school, better violin lessons, better holidays, better toys. But in the end, friends, the children do not want better toys. What they want is 
time, your time, and a time which cannot really be replaced by grandparents or by by maids. Grandparents do not discipline. There's a shirt you can buy in Australia. It says, "Ask mummy, and if." She doesn't give it to you. Ask grandma, <laughs> right? Grandparents just shower you with gifts. They don't discipline, right? Parents are those who are to discipline. I witnessed a、um, a family who、uh, the kids were looked after by maids. That、um, the mother wanted to put the, the shoes on the little kid, and the kid kicked up a big fuss and kicked her legs, and in the end, the mother gave up and just walked walked away. The maid came along, the, sh- the、uh, shoes on, no trouble at all. Why? Is it because maid has very good practice and, and mothers can't do it? No, it's because at the time the kid was basically wanting attention. They want your time, and they know it when you actually think that something else out there, your career or something else, is more important. Than them, they somehow know it. For the sake of your kids, spend time with them. That is the best thing that you can give them. Now, how does that affect our church community? Well, fathers, you at least have to be those who teach your children. You may not be a Bible study group leader. Not everybody's meant to be a Bible study group leader, but at least you got to teach your children when you have children、uh, the Bible. There is some leadership. There is some teaching there. And so, for those who are not yet married, not yet have children, work at taking leadership. Work at reading the Bible with other people.、Uh, it's time to get off, you know, playing Halo Four, Five, or whatever it is. Right? Time to get into real life. <laughs> Friends, how we run our marriage, how we treat our children, has a great effect on them, and therefore how they turn out and how they affect the wider church. We are to be an example to them. It is great, as、uh, someone mentioned earlier, to see the older kids here at BTPC actually serve the younger kids. Family life spills over to church life. Last set of、um, relationships. Point four: Christ-centered slavery. Usually, we apply this passage to work, to、um, bosses and employees, and there's a secondary application to that. But the primary application is to slaves. You think, well, we don't have slaves today. Of course, you have slaves. They call maids. Right? It's not quite the slave as in the first century, but there is a, a very close parallel, isn't there? You do have quite a lot of authority over them.、Uh, they can only be in this country because you have employed them.、Uh, you can control their passport. You know, when you travel to Malaysia or whatever, you, you have quite a bit of authority over them. Uh, maids, uh, bonded service—that's a kind of slavery.、Uh, you、uh, go into some uni course, and、uh, 
Mr. Lee, your uh, PM scholarship that they give you, uh, they want you to be bonded. That's a kind of slavery. It's a volunteer kind of slavery, <laughs> but it's slavery. Um, by the way, I think Singapore is a great country. Right? I think Lee Kuan Yew was the closest you ever get to a benevolent dictator. Right? <laughs> He's so good. He's done so much good for the country. You know, you... But you are signing yourself up as you get those scholarships uh, to bonded service for four years or whatever afterwards. You've just got to keep that in mind. How then are we to act in the light of these relationships? Well, the first point is both of us have to realise, both the slave and the master have to realise that we have a master in heaven. We are those who live for Jesus, the master, the king, the Lord. Let's take uh, what the slave should be doing first. Verse um, chapter, back to Ephesians chapter 6, chapter 6 and verse, um, where are we? 5. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by way of eye service as people pleases, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service uh, with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he'll receive back from the Lord whether he's slave or free. That is, if you are employee, uh, I guess none of us, as far as I know, are maids, but if you were a maid, then you are to work in a way that is faithful. That is doing work not only when the master is watching. I had some friends back in Sydney who um, knew of other friends who at work can be uh, playing their computer game on their monitors. And then they've set it up such that if the boss and the manager ever comes around, they have to hit this, hit this button called the boss button. Hit the button, suddenly all these graphs come up on the screen. Right? Go looking along, looking for their you know, holiday, you know, and then suddenly all the graphs on the screen. That is actually not working faithfully. Uh, that is just working when the boss is watching. Now, why is it that many people stay back to 9, 10 p.m. at night at work? Sometimes, because there is actually so much work to be done, you know, it gets towards that June, June, end of the year thing, financial year, and there's so much work to do. But sometimes, you're staying back at work until 9 because your superior is there at his desk or her desk until 9, and you don't want to be seen leaving before that. It's exactly what this passage is trying to teach us against. Not to live and work for the sake of the eye of the boss. Why not get your work done? And say, look, uh, I, I got in here early at 8, and I got it done, and uh, I got Bible study tonight, so I'm going to leave early. See you tomorrow morning. You got it work done, you've been faithful. Work for your master in heaven, not for your master here on earth. Oh, by the way, in verse 6, it's very important to get this right. Some people take verse 6, uh, where it says, doing the will of God from the heart, or with all your heart, in the New International Version, they take it to mean that we should do our work striving for 110%, striving for, for excellence. In the context here, it's not about seeking to be excellent. 
It's seeking to be faithful. The idea of doing it from your heart is to do it sincerely. Uh, do it when even the boss is not watching. Do it for your real boss in heaven, Jesus, who always seeing you. That's the idea. It is not a reason for chasing your career and trying to be the best you can be in your field. That kind of idea of excellence is really not in the Bible. What the Bible wants from us is faithfulness, not necessarily success. Faithfulness, that is what's called for. If you are the boss, verse 9, how do you treat those lower than you? You know, those, the coffee girl, the, the, the cleaners, your maid. Or verse 9, masters do the same to them, that is, act in a way that is acknowledging Jesus is your Lord. Act in a way that, that is faithful. Stop threatening. Stop threatening. It's easy to be threatening others when you are the boss, shouting at them, being angry at them, and saying, "Now, unless you do this right, um, you know, you're out of here." And now there are times when you know they are just being so unfaithful that you need to give them some ultimatum. And but it's not the attitude of threatening and making them scared and making them always live on the edge. We're to be those who care for them. It's great to hear, uh, hear that recently Singapore has uh, allowed for the maid to have every Sunday off. Is that right? One day a week off? Now it's law? Yes, yes. Many years ago when I came to Singapore, it was only one day in a month. However, many of the Christian families I visited, they still gave their maids every weekend off, every Sunday off which is very close to what the scriptures say about, you know, letting your slaves, you know, have their Sabbath. We are to care for those under our charge. Christians are to be different from our world, non-threatening. Well, again, this has impact on the church. The way you lead those under you in the family will spill over to the way you lead others. You know, you're running some organization, they're running the church cab. How do you treat those who are in your committee? It flows through to how we see people at church. Uh, here in the uh, Ephesian church, he's talking to the master's slaves because most likely the master and the slave is there in the congregation. Well, when you're actually at church, you're one in Christ. You are no longer to necessarily treat them as your maid, your brothers and sisters. It's a challenge to us how we view people. Is it in terms of the status of the world or is it as brothers and sisters? Well, here then, point five, the Christ-centered family. The Christ-centered family and the Christ-centered church I want to suggest to you, are all circular, revolving, one affects the other. What we do in church is not just what we do in church. It ought to flow through to what we do in the family. For Christianity is not just a Sunday affair, it spills over to all of life. 
and what we do in the family, we cannot just keep it secluded so that it doesn't affect the church. In Australia, there's this, the term called the car park miracle. Uh, the car park miracle is where you're driving into church, you're running late, and your whole family is having a big fight in the car. All right? Husband and wife shouting at each other, kids, you know, shouting, everybody, you know, not happy. As soon as you drive into the car park in the church, you come out, all the church people are there. Ding! Miracle. <laughs> Suddenly everybody's happy, you know. Now, you can put that on for a little while, but in life, pretty soon, it becomes quite apparent how your family is to the rest of the congregation. Make it a reality that we work in our family life, and that will build up our big church family life. Let's pray. Now, Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you give us family. We pray, Father, that we might live in our families in a way that is centered on Jesus, on the gospel and what he has done. We may have heard things and been reminded of things today that challenge us. Please, Father, help us to change, help us to grow. Help us to be encouraged by your word. And we pray, Father, for us at, uh, at BTPC that we might be a family to our families, that we'll be able to care for the families amongst us, and that we, as, as we relate to our own families, that we might relate in such a way that will bring blessing to the wider church community. And we ask these things for Jesus' sake. Amen.